Welcome to episode 57 of Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Rito. Uh, I'd encourage you to subscribe to Kyperian.com so you can receive weekly summaries of the things that we've been working on, projects, and so forth. Again, go to Kyperian.com and subscribe and enter your email and so you can be a part of our, of our journey and our vision at Kyperian Commentary. On this 57th episode, I have the, the real joy of bringing back one of the, my old friends, Steve Macias, who has been involved with Kyperian and a host of other projects over the years. We've developed a wonderful friendship, and he's gifted in many areas. But today, we'd like to talk about the, the legacy of R.J. Rush Dooney. Uh, Steve, how are you this afternoon? I am doing well, Yuri. I'm here in Los Altos and uh, in the very place where Rushduni began one of his Christian education ministries. So I'm, I'm glad we get to talk about his legacy because I'm one of the inheritors of it. Yeah, that's, a, that's fascinating in and of itself. And I was curious recently, you know, I've been aware of uh, R.J. Rushduni's works for a long time, read a lot of his works, that uh, he had some work with uh, Indian reservations as a missionary, right? That's right. That's how his, his Presbyterian kind of ministry began was with uh, the Native Americans. And there's actually a great book on it called The American Indian. And I think it really caged a lot of his uh, uh, political views, too, because he got to see how uh, the state and how government intervention into the lives of, of individuals affects them. And so we begin to see Rushduni, once he leaves the reservation, get involved in political discussions before he begins, you know, producing his theological, you know, uh, dissertations like the Institutes. Right, right. I'm always fascinated by that question itself. Like when people express their ideologies, their uh, very full of conviction point of views, like what formed that ideology? How did you get to this point? And Rush Dooney seems to have that, uh, that history there with, with his uh, Indian uh, missions experience that framed yeah. a lot of his... Lot well, of his not life. only that, the... The perspective that we should look at Rushdie too is he's his family came to New York City when he was really young as kind of Armenian refugees. They're escaping the the genocide, mm. and his family were you know descendants of Armenian priests. So you have somebody whose background is were Christians going all the way back to Saint Mark or you know the early church and the Armenian church, and then they come here to escape the persecution from uh, you know the Turks there in Armenia. And then they begins this Presbyterian ministry to Native Americans. And so those two ideas of kind of government-sponsored genocide along with the treatment of the reservation create a very interesting folk uh, combined with his kind of Reformation theology. Well, I think everyone who has been aware of the political cycles in the United States may not be aware of R.J. Rushdoony's influence in some of the political transitions that we've uh, sort of experienced in American politics. If you were able, Steve, can you talk a little bit about the Rushdunian influence in, let's say, the moral majority, for example? Right. Well, as a background, my personal background, before I was a minister here in the Anglican Church and um, before I got involved in Christian education, I was a member of uh, different political parties. I worked in the California State Assembly for Republican offices, and we knew of Rushduni because of his influence in uh, national politics. He's kind of like this name that people know. He's the boogeyman uh, to the left. You know, He's the one that inspires the moral majority, the Pat Robinsons that have the hope to take over the United States. But he's also somebody who provided this idea that individuals and local communities, 
even if they don't have all the power, can take back certain branches of the United States government or authority. And so Rushduni and his intellectual writings are seen as source materials that inspired the 1980s moral majority movement. But in order to get there, you kind of have to understand uh, who Dr. Rushduni was. And I think that begins uh, before his political involvement and after his uh, reservation involvement. Because what you see is Rushduni as a, a scholar, somebody who uh, grew up in the 30s, went to UC Berkeley, uh, went through this process of discovering uh, the kind of nuances of his faith. He began to discover that, like Machen and these guys, that uh, there was a, a movement in Presbyterianism happening where you know, PCUSA or PCA, that they were uh, losing ground because of the, the pressures on the Christian faith. And so Rushduni is writing one side as a political commentator, but he's also writing as a theological commentator. And there is one singular influence, and we've had this conversation before, but there's one singular influence that makes Rushduni significant. And that is Rushduni comes into contact with the writings of Cornelius Van Til. And I believe it's Andrew Sandlin who says that nobody would know today who Cornelius Van Til was. He was just some obscure Dutch theologian, kind of like how we would understand other Dutch theologians. Uh, he was an obscure Dutch theologian until Dr. Rushduni picked up his writing and wrote books explaining it, you know, whereas uh, Cornelius Van Til was the genius who originated presuppositional apologetics and the reformed view uh, of sphere sovereignty, taking the, the best of Dutch reformed theology. He needed somebody to translate that to popular level. And Dr. Rushduni is significant today because he took Van Til's writing and made it popular. He took the theory of, you know, presuppositional apologetics. He took all of those uh, Dutch reformed ideas and made them accessible to American Presbyterians, American Christians in general. Right. And he made it uh, into a, a kind of magnum opus. I mean, he has essentially applied Ventilian thinking into a host of areas. This, you know, I don't know if you've read this, but this came across in, um, I think it was Michael McVicker's uh, dissertation on Rush Dooney and his influence in America. And I think it's called Christian Reconstruction. And he talks a lot about the influence that Rush had on even people that we would, you know, people that were gigantic figures that in the background, there was, you know, people like Jerry Falwell and others. And in the background was this voice shaping the philosophical framework of, of a conservative sort of revival of American politics. However, you look at that revival as beneficial or not, Rush doing his voice was the, the grandfatherly figure sort of stimulating this abundance of conservative new thought in the 1970s. I think that's just a, a fascinating element that I think is unknown by, by many. Right. And the Vandillian, the Vantillian thing is the foundation, but where it became practical was when it came to education. So mm. if you imagine the 1960s, we have the, the Civil Rights Act, you have desegregation, you have the privatization of, of Christian elementary schools and high schools. There's this change and transformation that's happening in American education. And so Christians are having to challenge, what does the Bible say about Christian education? Is there a way to educate our children according to biblical standards. And this is where Rushduni is able to come in with a voice. You know, he says, you know, he writes the uh, first, the messianic character of American education, where he's documenting 
how American education has been taken over by you know, secularists and Marxists and all these different things with the intention of subverting the Christian faith. And then he's actually, uh, he's actually the person involved in defending homeschoolers. He's going to various court cases, testifying as an expert witness, demonstrating that Christians have the right to provide what kind of education they want for their children. So even before his ideas percolate up to people like Jerry Falwell or other political figures, he's providing, based on the framework given by Cornelius Van Til, a standard uh, for how to understand Christian education through his work in testifying. And it's this platform of education, the rest of his ministry kind of flourishes. You know, you take his idea of, of education and the failure of American education, mm -hmm. and you take that then to uh, the Bible and to the church, and you see spring up out of that is his Institutes of Biblical Law, where he takes the Ten Commandments and applies it to those other spheres of life as well. So education being the foundation, then moving into the church and its influence, these kind of uh, ideas become the seedbed for the next age of uh, the Christian reform movement. You know, men like Francis Schaeffer, who are popularizing these things, are getting their foundational information through this filter of Russus John Rushduni. Right, and he, you listen to his lectures, some of them are on YouTube and in different places. Um, he is not the most charismatic of speakers by, by any stretch. And I love that image. There's that kind of a prophetic figure that I think Gary North talks about this, that these pioneer figures, they do end up a good chunk of their lives alone, I should say, in, in isolation, because they're forming the uh, skeleton for the future flesh of this movement or, or uh, journey, theological, ideological journey. And for that to happen, they need to be the kind of people who, you know, who, who stay up to two o'clock in the morning, writing manuscripts, taking notes. You know, you, you probably know this better than I do, but uh, it's said that he read a book a day for most of his life, which is a pretty impressive feat. But these kind of figures, they do these things, and they're never going to be popularizers. If he lived in the age of Facebook, Rustuni probably wouldn't get that many likes. <laughs> but he provided the environment, the context, the, the groundwork, as you said, the seedbed for other people to come along and to take those profound intellectual messages and make them um, applicable in, in our day. That's right. And it is a significant contribution. If you look at uh, the works he produced, there's dozens and dozens of manuscripts that he personally wrote. And without the help of a computer, you and I who have written extensive manuscripts know how difficult that might, might have been. But right. it was part because he was uniquely gifted. and He had received a great education from UC Berkeley when it was still a good university. Right. But he also had uh, unique gifts to him of having that photographic memory and, like you said, reading a book a day, which I think it's worth pointing out was not a book of Reformed theology a day. Uh, you and I have, have commented on this before, that great public theologians or great theologians in general read uh, widely. He read fiction, he read theology, he read history, and he saw how all of those applied to the different spheres of life. There's a great uh, footnote. I don't remember which part of the institutes it's from, but he comments kind of offhandedly about uh, this practice in India, such and such. I don't even remember the exact quote, but I said, how did he know this about Indian sex practices? And he has a footnote and in the footnote, it says Indian Tantra sex dances. Then he puts a note that he read this book in 1960 something. Mm -hmm. So he was reading not just 
you know, Michael Horton's the five uh, lectures on Calvinism or, or something like that. He was reading right. uh, from a variety of sources and he became this kind of uh, theological juggernaut uh, because he was able to synthesize what all the things were happening in the world into the the lens of the Christian faith. That's what he had picked up from Van Til is pulling everything into one idea. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And and the kind of clarity that he provided. I mean, uh, I've read through the Institutes um, at least once. Um, I'm not sure if there's an audible version of it. I'm not sure, but I think that'd be lovely to uh, work my way through. But I remember very clearly being just amazed at how much he knew the scriptures, how much he knew um, the law of God, how much he gained from it, even uh, to the point of, um, I think he, he was somebody who, who left no stone unturned when it came to biblical writings. He would uh, develop a theology of hair, a theology of the land. I mean, you have to have a, a, a certain level of of love for scriptural detail. Um, and I think he really lived out this principle that you and I have talked about in the past, that this, the spirit does not waste his breath. And for, Van, and for Rush Duny, the whole Bible, every detail of the law gave us something unique that could give new breath and new life to the Christian faith. That's right. And that kind of gave him a, an odd reputation too. Uh, you and I, who are you know James B. Jordan guides, we talk about the deep weird where, where Dr. Jordan, he takes it to that next point, but then he goes into what he calls the, the skinny branches, right? right? Where he talks about maybe this is not exactly what it means, but it's a possible explanation. Rush Dooney, because he's willing to develop uh, theology beyond what's just, you know, the basics, he sometimes gets in trouble that way too. You know, mm. people know that uh, he held, you know, some views that we would consider peculiar, right? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, and so some of his interpretations are, are hated by uh, modern Christians, and you can see a lot of derision come towards him by the, the modern liberal folks. You know, when you take a staunch stand on your view of, of marriage and homosexuality, you're going to make enemies. But when you go a step further and say, well, the Bible actually commands these things to be executable offenses, then you're going to make some real enemies. So uh, he's attracted, because of those stances, some strange followers over the years. Mm -hmm. It's a lesson for, I think, for us of not developing a cult of, of personality. One of the things that I, I really don't like about Dr. Rushdoony is that he didn't have a connection to you know, the institutional church. I mm -hmm. think that his significance, his impact would have gone a lot further had he been plugged into you know, a, a major domination, uh, which he was earlier in his life. Uh, but that the, the changes that were happening in Presbyterianism, the Reformed world, and Christianity during the, the 70s and 80s led some people to find uh, you know, other ways to express their gifts. But with all that said, there is so much to be mined, uh, you know, dug out of Rushdie's various works on the faith, the family, um, all of those different things. Right. When you have a, 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 an, an amazing accumulation of writings and... Um when you have just produced so many unique works, it's, it's likely that something in there will not be as carefully represented, carefully articulated. And so I think we need to, just the, the decency of having discernment when it comes to even people that we admire to look at their works in, in total and realize that uh, um, we don't need, we don't, we can't give blind allegiance. We need to be critical, even the people that we have respect and admire. So in light of that, Steve, 
Um, a lot of things we can still gain that we can gain from rush duty for you who have been exposed to live near that you have been breathing that kind of environment for some time. What do you think are the lessons from rush duty uh, to our day? What, what can young apologists, young men and women considering life through biblical lens what are kind of a, maybe a couple of lessons that you think Rush Dooney has instilled and we can, we, still, we can go back and say, this is wonderful, this is beneficial, this is needed for our age? Right. Well, I would start with the, the hope he had for education. So imagine in the 1960s where homeschooling was basically illegal in many states, where the number of homeschoolers was so few that it was unthinkable that there would be a homeschool movement. Rush Dooney was willing to put his reputation, his work, his life, all on the line for something that he thought was important. And in the back of his mind, he knew that if he stood for something, that he could gain steam. And whether it's uh, the Christian classical uh, uh, school movement or the homeschool movement that exists today, they owe a great deal of their uh, legacy to the ways that Rushdoney paved, paved the path for them, for him taking those stands. Mm. Uh, recently, I was in Pensacola, where you are, visiting... Uh, the Pensacola Christian College there where they have produced, you know, Christian curriculum and homeschool curriculum for, you know, hundreds of schools across the nation who now are separate from the public schools who are encouraging Christian education. And the foundation for a lot of what they're doing was Rush Dooney's books. You know, the philosophy of the Christian curriculum was first delivered as a talk at a Baptist school in Pensacola. And so, yeah, this guy who took the thing, the idea that, all truth belongs to God first, that we're living things and thinking things after God, applied that to one sphere of life and was able to be significant, uh, not because he was putting the Rush Dooney label up there, but because he was trying to take something that was bigger than him and follow it to its end. I think a lot of young people uh, might be pessimistic about the future, but it didn't look as dark as it did in the 1960s. Uh, Today, we have a great number of opportunities because of him. And uh, folks looking at Rushton's legacy should think to build and stand on his shoulders as far as education is concerned. That's wonderful because I think that's where much of the, the lessons begin. They begin when our children are young. They begin uh, when our children are, are open to hear the message afresh and anew. And I think that, um, that legacy has um, established itself, certainly the homeschooling movement, but beyond that for sure. I'm really grateful for for that part, and it's it's important also to realize that that legacy of uh, education of Christian education in the early days, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, that also established a kind of um, resistance in the Christian movement that encouraged politicians, encouraged uh, men and pastors to take that kind of strength to other spheres of society as well. And I think we need these figures, however flawed they may have been, to sort of, we need to look back at them and say, there are men who stood up and who were not interested in the acclaim of other men, but were interested first and foremost in being faithful to the scriptures. And that in itself, I think, is a lesson that uh, a lot of our our modern evangelical movement really needs an age where it's so easy to succumb to the temptations of the big, great, and mighty. And here is a a man who, in many ways, 
lived in isolation from his, um, from other scholars because of his um, temperament, I should say. But at the same time, he carefully, slowly, meticulously, and with perseverance, continued faithfully. And now here we are sitting uh, with books in, in our libraries, with audio, with all sorts of material available. And I hope the uh, Christian church will begin to glean from uh, this great man. That's right. And it's, it's a matter of, of going back to the foundational gifts that Cornelius Ventil gave us. He gave us that question of, is there a part where God is neutral? Is there a part where there is a place for the Christian to compromise with the world. What I think we most see from Dr. Rushdoney and why his connection to Cornelius Van Til was so important is that Cornelius Van Til gave him uh, some philosophical understanding of what God expected of us. By saying, uh, by what standard and by saying there is no neutrality, Rushdoney was able to teach a whole generation of Bible teachers that God did speak to these various spheres. We have to wonder, would there have been a Francis Schaeffer speaking about the pro-life issue if there hadn't been uh, a Dr. Rushdoony inspiring people to take a stand? We have to wonder, would there have been a, a Dr. James Kennedy if Rushdoony hadn't been encouraging the church to get involved? Would there have been there a, a Dr. George Grant if you know, this movement of reconstruction didn't give them a philosophical foundation? You have to wonder, would there have been a, a Doug Wilson with the New St. Andrews? Would there have been uh, a Ray Sutton in the Anglican tradition? These guys who went back to what happened with Christian education and biblical law, who had found that there was a standard from the Bible that could be articulated and conform with both the Reformed and Evangelical faith. Uh, I think that Rushdoney is kind of the bridge between all of those figures we understand today as representing conservative, reformed uh, evangelicalism, and the faith of our fathers on the continent. Mm. Well said, Steve. Steve, uh, I want to thank you for, for, your, uh, for your time, speaking about the, the legacy of Rush Dooney. When people ask you, um, who's this guy that you've been talking about or has influenced your life, um, what would you say would be sort of a, an introductory work to Rush Dooney, of Rush Dooney, you'd recommend someone go to who has not been exposed to it before? Well, the most introductory work is called Law and Liberty, and it gives his basic uh, political philosophy. But what is interesting about Rushdoony is that people come to him for different reasons. If you're looking for a, a political thing, you can go to This American Republic, which is a very short introduction to how Rushdoony views government. If you're looking for an introduction to philosophy, you can go to The One and the Many. If you're looking for an introduction to presuppositionalism, you can go to by what standard? Part of his gift is that he had a, a breadth in all of these different subject areas. You know, if you wanted education, you can go to his philosophy of Christian education. Right. And what's also great about Rush Dooney is that all of his lectures since the 1960s have been uh, recorded and archived. And so if you're trying to get a picture of who Rush Dooney is, you can go to uh, sites like uh, Pocket College or calcedon.edu, and you can choose a subject. And there's uh, literally hundreds of Rushduni lectures. Uh, although, as Rush, as uh, Yuri warned you, they're not as exciting as as his sermons, but the, <laughs> but the content, none the same, uh, nonetheless, is is great for us uh, to, to to digest and to put forward. Reverend Steve Macias, uh, listen. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your contribution to Kyperian commentary, but also your 
your work and uh, continuing the legacy of people like Ventil and Rush Dooney and Schaefer in uh, your part of the world, which is not known for its uh, conservative legacy. So I'm grateful to you, brother. Thank you again. Thank you, Pastor.